This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Palgrain Press. Stuff for you to talk about in this episode include... Gumshoe with more rolling. Auguste Escoffier. Hellenism at the British Museum. And Edmund Bailly. It's the critical moment in the heist of a lifetime, but things have gone sideways. Bullets are coming from all directions, so you need to think and act quickly. Find your friends. Keep your head down. And don't tip your hand. Never Bring a Knife is a social deduction game with less talking and more shooting from our friends at Atlas Games. In Never Bring a Knife, each player has a secret role, cop or criminal. Pay attention to figure out who's on your team, then work together to take down the opposition. When the first player falls, their whole team loses and the other team wins. Never Bring a Knife is fast, it's action-packed, and it has duffel bags full of cash. Actual duffel bags full of cash not included. It's also available in friendly local game stores and online starting Friday, January 17th. Stop in and pick up your copy or go to atlas-games.com slash never bring a knife. Or follow the link in the show notes. Because guns and money always make game night more fun. The rattle of die, the thump of miniature, the crunch of Dorito, and the benevolent gay of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to a singular episode of The Gaming Hut. Because here in The Gaming Hut, Patreon backer, beloved Patreon backer Keelan O'Hay, wants to know how to add more rolling to Gumshoe. I'm in love with Gumshoe. Thank you, Keelan. It loves you, too. But my players really want to roll more often, especially during the investigative stage. I've introduced a hotfix where they can gamble with their points and roll to get the point spend for free on a six or have to spend a point to get the base information on a one. But this feels like it's counter to the idea of Gumshoe. Robin? Uh, Keelan is correct. It is counter to the idea of gumshoe. And Ken, on this podcast, when we say everything we possibly can about a subject, it's time for us to move Robin, on. Robin, 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 Robin. Um, we have this Dorito. We have to eat the Dorito. We can't just let it get stale. That's against okay. our it's against our code. Right. In that case, if we if we have to go on to state the obvious for fifteen minutes, the, the way to do it is to uh, uh, start out by attempting to reform those uh, lingering in darkness. Right. Uh, then perhaps we yes. can analyze why people love dice rolling so much that they want to do it when it's not to their benefit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, possibly uh, we can, I don't know, come up with some way for them to do this thing that's not to anyone's benefit. So I, I guess, well, let's start with hot fixes, actually. Okay, so right. what they can do is uh, during the investigative phase, uh, whenever they are uh, encounter a clue with a, a special benefit, whether that's a spend in uh, most versions of Gumshoe or a push in Yellow King or the upcoming uh, new version of uh, Mutant City Blues, what they can do is they can roll a die and on a uh, a six, they get the benefit. And on a one, you punch them in the face. <laughs> well, that will definitely um, prevent table talk, except yes. the talk of stop punching me in the face. I'm calling somebody, which is maybe not the ideal fun. Now, I recognize, as I say this, there are health and safety issues uh, yeah. specifically if they roll out of ones you'll hurt your hand yeah i mean that that can't be avoided robin but you're the gm for a reason yeah a- another i guess hot fix would be if 
you uh, encounter something with a special benefit, you roll a die. On a six, you get the benefit. On a one, you take a shot. There we are. Now we're talking hot fixes. Yes. yes. But again, uh, A, health and safety, and B, it will not actually help the players solve the mystery if they roll a lot of ones. But it will be true to the spirit of Yellow King role-playing. Right. In- indeed, yes. Uh, you can, it can inject them full of Thujone. So th- then we get to the point where it's like, well, let's, let's go under the hood for the players as well as for the GM. And, and you might pose them the question, why do you want to fail more often? What do you enjoy about failure? Because uh, the whole point of rolling a die, I think the reason that is exciting is that it introduces suspense the moment before you roll the die. And, I, and for some people, they do kind of psychologically like to fail a bunch. And uh, there are there are other rule systems that will uh, gratify that. <laughs> yes, that, <laughs> on yes. a regular basis. S- some some to such a degree that uh, people had to come in and do whole fifth editions to take that back out again. Yeah, but yes, uh, I I mean the the if you are looking to roll a die during the investigative phase to briefly take this question seriously, and I promise, Robin, <laughs> I'll stop taking it seriously just moments later. Uh, the die is not to determine whether or not you uh, get the clue or find the information or do anything that it would. The die is a die that lets you, the player, know what else is going on in the world. And it's like the music in the movie. And so you roll a die when you've asked the guy a question and you roll a one and then it's like a ton, 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 ton. And so, you know, either that guy is connected up to something bad or that someone bad has interested in that guy. Now, the trouble with that, of course, and on a six, something good happens. Like the guy has got more resources than you thought he had, or that um, uh, something helpful to you is connected to that guy. And so, you know, oh no, you can use the Masonic hall to store your dynamite. That won't be a problem. I'm a master Mason, that kind of thing. And so that way you have a rolling that changes the game world. And if you keep rolling a bunch of ones, it makes the game world worse for you, but you don't wind up in a situation where you're actually ungumshoeing gumshoe and might as well play one of the other games that offers you ample failure. The downside of course, to this is that it does mean that the GM has to have a ready list of things that can go right. And of things that can go wrong. And, depending on how abstract the players allow you to get, you can have the go right things or the go wrong things not immediately connected to that role, um, such that they roll a one. That guy really doesn't have anything bad, but you just say, oh, I've just added two more Dobermans to the bad guy compound. Well done there. And they're, oh, all right. And, or if they roll a six, it's like, well, there's nothing here. But when you um, uh, uh, get back to the hotel, um, you've got a brand new um, uh, rifle that has been brought to you by your contact in the CIA. And so that's, you know, just a little extra bonusy thing that happens. And it's sort of arbitrary. It's, it's in fact, by definition, arbitrary, but uh, it allows some sort of, of response to a die roll. If that is what the players, thanks to their bizarre psychological cravings, uh, can't live without. Right. Well, uh, I, I actually have a serious solution, but I'm going to hold it off for a little while longer uh, in order to to dive back into the the psychological craving. Why? Right. Uh, why people love dice and why uh, some people find it an impediment in Gumshoe that they are not required. I mean, people love dice because they're super fun, Robin. That's why people love dice. Right. And and what is super fun about dice? There's the uh, tactile element. There's certainly yep. people who collect dice. They like to fidget with them. Uh, the 
mice are their friend. They, they rattle in a fun way. Yes. But they thunk uh, as, as the miniatures rattle. Mm-hmm. And so there's that, I think, well, am I going to say Pavlovian that they, you have associated uh, since you started gaming the physical uh, reality of the dice with the fun of gaming. And there's just something you like about them and find satisfying. And, and yeah. you want to take that physical action. Um, right. And so I, I think that's one aspect of it. And the other one is that, uh, again, it's that ability to conquer fear in a safe environment. Uh, and essentially, uh, I bet if you took the players in your group or the players you know who are super into dice, that they are also the ones who will be most susceptible to slot machines or other uh, ways of um, submitting to voluntary taxation in a, uh, a casino uh, because the impulse there is there are suddenly real stakes is that you if if you engage with this randomizer and it goes a certain way you're uh, greatly rewarded and but on the other hand you uh, can lose uh, you can lose your money big time and uh, this i think that's the same part of the the brain that is being tickled uh, by scratch cards and by uh, rolling to see if you hit the ogre and wanting there to be a chance of a fumble as well as a chance of, of a critical. And in one case, the consequences are in our world and in your wallet. And in the other uh, situation, the consequences are uh, uh, fictive. They're, they're uh, in the narrative. And right. uh, if you're going to explore that, uh, and that's part of uh, the brain chemistry fun you want to get out of role-playing games, it's certainly better uh, than doing it uh, at, at the uh, bank of slot machines at the racetrack. Right. Now, Robin, I've got, I've got a real-time question that I've that I've mulled because we, Killen is not the only person with players who are a bit befuddled or, I don't want to say off-put, but certainly uh, they look askance at only one die in a game and they feel like it's not a proper game uh, somehow. Right. So not just, because Gumshoe is, is very austere in right. that it, not yeah. only does it not, have uh, rolling uh, dice to see if you get information or not, which for those of you who are just joining this podcast for the first time and have no idea what gumshoe is, the idea there is it's never interesting to fail to get information. Right. And and so my my, my question is, and this may be the, the, the boat has sailed too late for it to be for uh, Swords of the Serpentine, but what do you think would have been the response to, in an alternate history or in a different world or in a different version of gumshoe if we ever do, you know, Swords Against the Mythos or something, if the the main math were not jiggered, just extended a little bit, so the die you rolled to accomplish things was a die 10, and then the weapons did variable damage, so that you had to have a die 10 and some die 8s and some die 6s and a die 4 out on the table... And obviously the result would be somewhat swinging your combat, but maybe a little faster because you'd have a higher uh, damage potential d- depending. I mean, do you think that that would psychologically satisfy the people who come in and see one die and think suddenly they're building furniture in Denmark instead of playing a role playing game? Um, I think that you get complaints about the things that you do and you don't hear complaints about the things that you don't do. Right. Yeah. Um, so that if we had done that, that there would also be people saying, well, this game could be simpler. Yeah, this is uh, awful it, fiddly. At its core, it's a much yeah. simpler game, and you could probably just do this all with a D6. Why are these other... Why do I have to bring my other dice? And mm. and my story-oriented players don't understand why you need all these dice. And the trajectory of that complaint would be that over, over time, as the audience for simpler 
mechanics has grown since Gumshoe has been around for 10 or uh, 11 or 12 years now, um, in that space of time, uh, we have got more people saying, oh, this is a little complicated for me, rather than the original response was, oh, this is just a story game. Why is it right. so simple? So um, if we had done that, we might have brought in more people at the beginning, but I think that number would be like countable on several hands. Right, um, several hands and, full of dice. <laughs> right, and exactly. And, and you you know, if you have them open their hands to to uh, to be recognized, then they drop their dice. Their and, dice uh, and then there's a hellish clatter and the cat gets yeah, it. And, and it's just a whole thing. You could steal their dice. Right. We could have done that. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm old school enough that when I do play games, I like, uh, I like a little die clattering. Um, right now, I'm running 13th Age, and as the GM, you only ever roll a die 20. And so the players are the guys who have all the fun with the giant handfuls of damage dice or, or, or less fun when they get a bunch of ones. But the GM just has that single die 20 roll over and over and over again because damage is fixed. And there is, and I, I understand that it's entirely, you know, sort of some sort of primate trooping instinct, but there is a bit of FOMO, a bit of, I wish I was having all the dice fun that my players are having. Um, I'm not enough to want to roll damage dice. God, no. Um, fixed damage is a, a lifesaver and a time saver. But I understand the biochemical compulsion to touch a bunch of dice, even if, as you say, practice, intellect, and theory all argue that one die is just fine. And in fact, not rolling it lets the game move faster than rolling it and then having to desperately come up with some arbitrary consequence of failure. Right. right. Whereas as GM, uh, I've gone from uh, running uh, the quick shock gumshoe system of yellow King, which uh, unlike previous gumshoes eliminates die rolling for the GM altogether. Um, and that was fine by me. Whereas I'm now playing rune quest where you're constantly picking around for the exact different weird damage. And you've, you, so you roll percentiles, then you roll uh, the uh, d20 for a hit location, and then you roll a, a uh, any possible combination of polyhedrals for the damage. For the damage, and, yeah. And uh, I, I don't miss not rolling. I gotta right. say, yeah. You you have um, uh, you are an, an evolved being, one of those guys in a jumpsuit with the enormous head from the illustrations, and you're like, in the future, gaming will have one or no dice, and all right. the rest of us are are simple simple brute Morlocks. Uh, right. rattling our die eights around and saying, we loves them, our precious, they were given to us for our birthday to cross IPs. Right. Just like, you know, drama system, there's no numbers on the character sheet. So right. part of my whole jam is seeing how far we can simplify things while still having it feel gamey. But then on the other hand, the, the cards in Quickshock add a level of crunchiness to Gumshoe that it hasn't had before and I think may help satisfy uh, gumshoe players more, which brings me to the uh, actual answer to Keelan's uh, question, which is make sure during the investigative scenes there are lots of general ability rolls to make. So uh, in uh, Yellow King, when you're investigating things, you're always finding terrible stuff going on. So a it is the rare scene indeed where you are not making a composure check. And uh, in uh, the wars, uh, you may get an artillery barrage come in at you at any moment. And uh, in the other sequences, you should structure them so that the uh, there is risk, uh, and a, a risk that has an uh, interesting thing that possibly happens when you fail, rather than, so rather than having to bolt a new thing 
onto the investigative abilities, which can't really support them, use the general abilities more, find more stuff that can go awry in any given scene. And even if that makes the way the story can go somewhat more chaotic and unexpected, it's way easier, since the system's already designed for it, than coming up with a good consequence and a bad consequence for an extreme information gathering result anytime they ask for it, because that's uh, the, the logic of, you know, why would you have to make a, a mechanics role in the middle of this scene is much clearer and easier to come up with. And, and, uh, that's not a coincidence or, or a bunch of sense troubles. If you're running a, um, and then I guess the, the, the sort of the story solution there is that danger has to be more omnipresent than it is in your standard investigative game, which implies that either you in trail of Cthulhu, you are always surrounded by the forces of the mythos. And so there's going to be lots of, of sense troubles and stability checks and things. And even if the, the Migo don't have uh, a guy right there to mess with you, they've, uh, got spores in your head so you're making stability tests a lot you're and the the thing about that of course is that gumshoe characters are friable and will uh, abrade points uh, like a son of a gun <laughs> so you really need to keep a a, a good uh, a thumb on the refresh uh, rules and the haven rules in games that yes, have them. if you really like risk the general abilities are, yes. are just waiting for you right. right on right on their character sheets already but in some games like Knights Black Agents, that is kind of the preferred modus in which to play it is one in which you literally have maybe a brief stolen moment while you're in the car with the source driving across Switzerland, uh, escaping uh, the Russian mob. And so you're making drive checks and uh, health checks to stay awake and to stay on the road, even while you're trying to to get uh, stuff out of the source with whatever interpersonal ability you're using. Yes, your, your game has a Michael Giacchino score, not a Randy Newman score. Exactly. And so once you've, once you've figured out the soundtrack for your game, I think you'll maybe be going a little bit farther towards the idea of what things can be happening in your game that will spice up an investigative encounter without necessarily, as you say, uh, obviating uh, the rule set. Well, Ken, uh, as you know, on this podcast, whenever everything has been said about a topic that can possibly be said, it's time to move through a commercial to an exciting uh, segment and or hut waiting on the other side. They tried to suppress it. They tried to contain it. They left it for months on a loading dock in Estonia. But it's finally out at the Pelgrane Press web store or a top retailer near you. The most ambitious project yet from gumshoe master Robin D. Laws. The Yellow King role-playing game. Six pounds and four books of uncanny and exciting innovation wrapped together in an enthralling slipcase. Inspired by Robert W. Chambers' classic tales of reality horror. Reality, you say? We've got four of them to drive your terrified players through. Bellapoc, Paris, where art students navigate its absinthe-soaked demimonde, investigating gargoyles, vampires, and decadent alien royalty. The wars, where weirdness-savvy soldiers fight for survival and gnosis on the eerie, shifting battlefield of Europe's 1947 Continental War. Aftermath, where former partisans mop up the otherworldly remnants of the hundred-year tyranny they helped to defeat. This is normal now, our ordinary present day. 
Or is it? Spoiler, it is not. Featuring the debut of Quick Shock Gumshoe. Where physical injuries and mental shocks don't just tick down as abstract points. They haunt you as fiendish cards with debilitating effects and tricky discard conditions. Add it to your cart with Absinthe and Carcosa, a stunning full-color found object player-facing guide to 1890s Paris. And the missing and the lost, Robin's novel of intrigue and parageometry set in the aftermath reality. Get the Yellow King role-playing game. Before or it gets you. If cursed, do not return to store. For a limited time only, save up to $23 when you bundle Yellow King products at the Pelgrane Press store with the voucher code YELLOW. Get 15% off all Yellow King items when you combine the core game with Absinthe in Carcosa and or The Missing and the Lost. That's the voucher code YELLOW at pelgranepress.com slash shop. The clouds of steam, the clatter of pots, the smell of some piquant sauce bubbling away in the brass bottom saute pan welcome us to a very classy indeed version of the food hut. And this is a part of our uh, search through Paris of the Belle Epoque. And if you search too far through Paris and you haven't gotten to a restaurant, you're not doing it right. And in the uh, Belle Epoque, the best restaurant was that run by the great Georges-Auguste Escoffier. And Robin, you have the skinny on a guy whose job was to prevent skinny. Right. So if you uh, go to a fine dining restaurant uh, anytime soon and sit down and have a a lovely meal, chances are uh, that experience will be shaped by things that Auguste Escoffier innovated uh, in the late 19th century. Um, and his innovations uh, began, as you suggest, in uh, France. He owned several restaurants, uh, but he also worked in partnership with the hotelier Cesar Ritz and uh, at a hotel where they were both employees that not, neither of them had an ownership stake in, in London, uh, these uh, came to the fore. And it had the, oddly, his influence over French cooking really took root in the popular imagination because he introduced it to people not familiar with it. In fact, people not even really familiar that much with the restaurant experience because in late stage Victorian London, wealthy people did not go out to restaurants to eat. They went uh, either to their private club, which of course was a, a male-only environment, uh, and some of those places did have, you know, quite good chefs, or they entertained at home. And this is where uh, Richard Doilycart uh, comes into the story. And if you uh, have a, a musical theater or a classical music background, that name may be ringing a bell with you because he was the impresario who uh, produced Gilbert and Sullivan's uh, works. And in fact, built the Savoy Theater in order to house them. And uh, he innovated all sorts of things in in the theater world, like reserve seats. So there wasn't mm-hmm. a big stampede for, for the seats. And uh, he made enough money from producing Gilbert and Sullivan operas uh, that he then uh, decided to create a, a luxury hotel in London. And at his behest, this hotel had a whole lot of innovations uh, that were not normally uh, considered at this time in hotels. Some of them can suspiciously American in nature because Woo-hoo. in America, hotels had elevators and they had ensuite bathrooms. But in London, until the Savoy <laughs> came along, 
not so much. So, <laughs> And indeed, in Europe, those are still not necessarily always going to happen. Not necessarily, but especially at that time. And right. so, for example, the, the upper floors in a hotel used to be uh, in Europe uh, devoted to the servants and the staff. And they lived in dorms up top because nobody wanted to go up to the top floors where, of course... To climb all those stairs. Right. And now, uh, the luxury experience of going to a hotel, if, if you're at a five-star hotel, the best suites are up at the top. They're the, the, the most uh, coveted ones. So that's an example of the milieu in which luxury culture was being invented. And so uh, Ritz, who uh, then sort of took basically what Doyle Card and his wife, uh, Helen, put in place at the Savoy and went, ah, well, that's very good, but it isn't quite working. And he was sort of the genius who then fixed a whole lot of things that people found irritating or, or just less than magical about the hotel going experience. So for example, he eliminated the prospect of charging you for every little service, uh, which is perhaps an innovation we might like to see brought back. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he uh, made sure that the lighting uh, was uh, beautiful and flattering in the, the restaurant and that the women in particular looked their absolute best under the lighting. And, and uh, so he was sort of a, the detail guy um, who then went off on his own and created uh, a number of hotels, including uh, the uh, the Ritz in Paris and uh, the Carlton in uh, in London and uh, the word Ritzy is uh, derived from his name because he had that degree of impact on luxury culture. So that's the context that he creates for Escoffier to then develop restaurants into what we uh, have today because there were different serving styles in the 19th century before he came along that are quite unfamiliar to us now. Uh, the, there was, uh, the original French version was that you would approach a gigantic statuesque buffet where the display was important, as important as the food, and you would take your seat. Uh, you would maybe, if you were, uh, had control over where you sat, you would scope out the dish you most wanted to eat and try and sit there because it was considered rude to move around the room and you know, reach for things. So you just had to eat whatever you were sitting in front of. Right. That was later uh, replaced by uh, Russian service, uh, where basically it was a, <laughs> a sitting buffet where courses would be brought out to the uh, to the table, sort of banquet style. And of course, that still exists, but not at a fine dining restaurant. And what Escoffier did was he reformed the kitchen so that it was possible to serve dishes a la carte. You could order off a menu and get uh, your food. And not only that, but you would get your food at roughly the same time as everybody else at the table. If, they, In fact, not roughly. If with Auguste Escoffier, that's something you've gone terribly wrong if a dish right, was yeah. not bread at a time. Although we've, we, we, we've looked at um, menus from American restaurants in the 1880s, and those are menus. Those are, those are proper menus. Um, is there a... Is there a sense that menu culture also begins in America and goes over to Europe uh, because of the democratic nature? You can't be going in and having experiencing a sort of faux aristocratic dinner in America because that's just not the way that uh, things operated in the North to any great extent. Or is it that menu culture sort of emerges a bunch of places and Escoffier formalizes it and brings it to high-end uh, status in Europe. I, I wouldn't credit him with the creation of the menu, although we'll get to a particular type of menu that he yeah. does absolutely create, but rather the brigade system in the kitchen. He reorganizes the kitchen so that the previous practice was there was a 
beef department and a chicken department and a seafood department. And uh, they all worked in a siloed fashion so that if, uh, for example, uh, all uh, three of those needed a particular stock, as they often did, they would all produce them separately right. by category of food. Uh, there were basically, uh, you know, five or six different kitchens running in competition with one another. And what Escoffier did was he made them all work in coordination so that not only was effort not duplicated, there's only one person making stock, but also everything is coordinated in time so that the the fast dishes are started later than the slow dishes and that you can then do a la carte service. Another big thing that he did was he introduced professionalism into the kitchen. Uh, Anthony Bourdain uh, became famous uh, writing about how uh, kitchen uh, workers behind the scenes are basically pirates. Well, they were even more so mm-hmm. <laughs> until Escoffier okay. came along because the, there was uh, lots of swearing. And not only that, but the practice was uh, to become progressively drunker through the course of service so that uh, if you arrived later in the evening at a, at a restaurant, you would get ever more wayward food because the kitchen staff, the cooks, the kitchen were, staff uh, would be getting lit. They're absolutely plastered. And Escoffier said, no, no swearing in the kitchen, no shouting in the kitchen, and uh, especially no drinking in the kitchen. And uh, the, uh, the cooks didn't like that at first, but uh, Escoffier was also known for treating workers really well. And uh, they got over that when they realized that they were making a lot more money than their counterparts and became fiercely uh, loyal to uh, him. Now, once he introduced a la carte dining to uh, London diners at the Savoy, uh, he noticed that a lot of them were kind of confused, especially because the dishes were listed in French and mm-hmm. people didn't know what to order. And that's something that happens to folks today. But this this is the dawn of modern restaurant culture. So, of course, they were confused. And to fix that, he introduced the prefix uh, menu. And so uh, he but what he would do, because these are the you know, these are princes and princesses and captains of industry. These are the 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 cream of society back when society had more more uh, cream <laughs> well, it, it it it's um its cream was more thoroughly separated let's say that exactly so um and there was a fascinating culture clash in his restaurant in that the nouveau riche were uh elbow to elbow with the uh the aristocracy which had not yet been destroyed by world war 1 <laughs> and the state taxes <laughs> so uh what but he would do though is his prefix menus were personalized to the diner uh, he would take a careful uh, stock of uh, who liked what what dish and what they enjoyed and he, and so uh, there is a sense of you know extreme personalization of the luxury experience to these uh, and you can still get that in 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 uh, really high end restaurants today um, even if you're just a, a regular old game designer you luck into a, a good meal at a at a great restaurant often they will come out and they'll spend 10 15 20 minutes talking to you about what it is that you uh, like at uh, you know like to eat and then they will bring out a menu that is customized to that conversation although obviously the menu will feature because you went to that restaurant usually one of the restaurant's famous specialties and right. that is the same sort of thing that one imagines they don't come to the Ritz or the Savoy to eat just you know what they could eat at home so they come and they say you know we love beefsteak but you're still getting beef tornadoes a la Escoffier you're not getting 
you know, a steak like you could have grilled yourself back in the uh, suburbs. Right. But when you get in your time machine and go to the Savoy, you've been there before and they know you like the foie gras hot dog. So you get your specific thing for you without that interview needing to take place. Yeah, because, um, again, the part of the job of any great hotel, and that's true as as true now as it is then, is to know your high end customers so well that they feel like they're receiving a personalized service because right. they're very, very rich and spoiled. <laughs> and that is what they expect. And, and that was absolutely the thing that that Ritz and Escoffier introduced. And you would think that it would be older than that, but not so much. Not so much. Um, and so uh, in uh, England, at any rate, he popularized garlic, uh, green asparagus. Uh, the uh, the only asparagus anyone ate before then in, in the UK was, uh, was white asparagus. Um, he's responsible for a number of uh, dishes that are still served and eaten today, most notably things named after the opera star Nellie Melba. So uh, <laughs> peach Melba, which is a, uh, a peach dessert with a drizzle of uh, raspberry sauce and, and crystallized sugar and Melba toast. Uh, so that's a, a, an Escoffier thing you can see in any grocery store today. Um, he was famous for uh, giving his dishes exotic Names sometimes to conceal what they were. So, for example, he served aquises de nymphe à la roar or thighs of nymphs at dawn. Um, and what do you think that is, uh, Ken? Served in a well, I don't know, of, but I'm having two. Uh, yes, and what you're having is frog legs because <laughs> English diners were terrified of the notion that uh, they would be served frog until until they had some. And yeah. uh, the uh, uh, Prince of Wales, later Edward the Seventh. Uh, was a great uh, gourmand as well as a great womanizer, and uh, and he really liked those and made sure they were on the the menu. Um, in his personal life, uh, Escoffier uh, was uh, close personal pals with uh, Sarah Bernhardt, uh, another uh, character you can interact with in uh, the Yellow King role playing game Paris sequence. You can she can be your patron perhaps, and Gustave Doré, who and the three of them were all pals together, and uh, she credited him with making the best scrambled eggs in the world. And he would never tell her what his secret was, but later his his secret was put down on paper. And it is to cook the scrambled eggs over a a low heat uh, with a fork that has a clove of garlic speared uh, on it. And And, and, uh, uh, the the slow cooking over low heat is, even today, the Julia Child scrambled egg method. And I think... That's the Jacques Pepin method as well, right? Uh, well, uh, probably that's because... Because there are two schools of scrambled egg thought, which is off topic for this hut, but maybe we can revisit it in a scrambled egg hut. Right. But um, uh, but that, that that notion that his method is the one that is still, you know, uh, Julia and Jacques and the finer French cooks are doing it and, and turning their noses up even now at TV, American TV chefs right. who do it wrong. Um, and, and the mechanism by which all of his knowledge was conveyed... Uh, into being the baseline for French cooking uh, was uh, his book, The uh, Guide Culinaire. Uh, it's published in 1903, so that's after the the Yellow King uh, period by a little bit, although he lived to like the mid-30s. And this laid out basically from the beginning, from all of the preparatory stages and what you needed in your kitchen and, and then uh, to how to make all of these uh, dishes uh, so, for example, it has 35 different ways to make pheasant, but it also has the the super uh, uh, basics in it. Um, and you will find it in English under the title Guide to Modern Cookery. And it is something that is still 
uh, made and updated in, in new editions today. And in an exciting uh, Yellow King footnote, uh, the original publisher is Editions Flammarion, uh, which is headed by uh, the brother of uh, Camille Flammarion, the science fiction writer and astronomer and elliptonist, who we've talked about in a previous segment, and is also a character you can interact with. So uh, there's a, and he, that publishing company, which again still exists today, started out publishing uh, Flammarion's books. So there's a cool little uh, uh, footnote for you there. And um, and in terms of uh, coming up with fashionable recipes and, and reforming the tradition of, uh, of the, of the, of the kitchen as the sort of the, the, the kingdom of the, of the chief chef. Um, he also in the, uh, Le Guide Culinaire, we should probably say just so that our Francophone listeners don't keep sobbing. Um, no, we're not, we're not fooling them. Ken. Yeah, no, we're not. Um, uh, but, but in that he's also, Sort of, and again, if you're familiar with Julia Child or Jacques Pepin, you sort of see the same approach that he uses. He's taking the sort of jambledy structure of old recipe books and putting them down into sort of base recipes so that once you've mastered hollandaise sauce, you can do that same hollandaise sauce on every kind of dish that has hollandaise sauce on it. Once you figure out how to make a bechamel, then you can make a bechamel for all these other dishes. And once you figured out the sort of basic way to say roast a chicken, there's like basic roast chicken. And then there's a zillion variations on basic roast chicken, but it's all that same sort of codification and organization that you were talking about when you're talking about organizing the kitchen into the order of eating, as opposed to the, uh, by the menu item, the order of cooking is also from the basic, from the general or the basic up down to the specific so that your thoughts as you cook can be more organized as well. So he's in that Victorian tradition of taxonomizing things, I guess, yes. and putting them into a structure such that before 1903, when he writes the book, anybody's sauce Romaine might be all over the map. After 1903, people are basically going to know what you mean by sauce Romaine, and you're going to be able to go forward and make whatever you need with that sauce Romaine. Right. Yes, science, method, organization, mm -hmm. that's Escoffier. So uh, I just want to close by listing some of the items on a spectacular dinner uh, held for some uh, uh, suddenly rich magnets of industry at the uh, Savoy. They uh, said, we want the most lavish possible meal you can serve us, Auguste Escoffier. And he said, well, it's going to cost 15 pounds a head. Whoa. And they said, yeah, that's great. Um, and by way of context, 15 uh, pounds a head is a middle-class person's monthly salary. Yeah. <laughs> Which, in fairness, I have paid for one meal at one time at Charlie Trotter's restaurant in Chicago. A whole 15 pounds. Well, a middle-class person's a monthly salary, let's put yes. it that way. <laughs> so uh, among the things on the menu, it starts with Russian hors d'oeuvres and cantaloupe, and then it uh, uh, goes on to uh, uh, several soups. There's a borscht. He was famous for his borscht. Um, and bird's nest soup made with actual bird's nest, uh, timbales of crayfish mousse, uh, roast chicken with foie gras and truffles. One of his roast chicken innovations was to completely disassemble the chicken and then put it back together with a paste of uh, herbs and fat so that there, uh, you didn't have to sit there and watch the waiter saw away at the chicken in order to carve it at the table. It just right. came apart miraculously. Uh, medallions of lamb with mushroom sauce, uh, sorbet and port 
quail wrapped in grape leaves. There's a lot of things on um, eggplant Provencal, a longest of things that you could still uh, get today and that I uh, wouldn't mind having. Although his menus were full of ortolans. Uh, was ortolans all over, and uh, uh, listeners may know this uh, legendary bit of uh, decadent gourmanderie, which is now illegal in France because these little small songbirds, the ortolans, have been eaten to the brink of extinction. Right, and it was made illegal. Very, they dragged their heels over this, and uh, and it wasn't because the method of preparation involves cruelty to the ortolans, which it does, but rather <laughs> just because they were on the verge of extinction. But basically this is a small bird that is uh, uh, cooked in, uh, in, in uh, sort of braised in a sauce uh, to the point where you just eat the whole thing whole. They cut off the beak, but everything else, you feel the bones squish in your mouth and stuff. And, and somehow, even though it's illegal and decadent and terrible, uh, many modern food writers have had one ortolan apiece. But back in uh, Escoffier's day, there was a lot more than one ortolan in your plate. And the way that you would eat an ortolan is you would put a towel over your head and eat it in darkness. Some said that's because you wanted to get the full aroma of the ortolan and not let any of it be wasted. And other people said uh, you must shield yourself from God's eyes when you do something as decadent and awful as eating a whole bloated ortolan. Because the ortolans were, were fed in, in dark cages as well. They would swell themselves up on their seed. Yeah, so they, they were blinded and super yeah. puffy. So no part of this is a moral proceeding. Right. Uh, but I like the, the part where, you know, good old uh, 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 Catholic and Calvinist shame are working together and saying, well, you can eat an ortolan, but you'd better not look at God when you do it because you know what you're doing. Yes, and I'm not sure the towel was in place at this point that uh, uh, it doesn't sound like there was any particular shame or Calvinism involved in, in these uh, ortolans at this time. But uh, well, uh, as they it dwindled, was, it was a decadent era, Robin, people eating ortolans out in public. There were way more decadent uh, things going on. Um, speaking of decadence, Ritz and Escoffia had to leave the Savoy in uh, 1898 when uh, Doily uh, wife, Helen, who all along resented uh, Ritz's changes to her uh, fancier decor, started uh, really delving into their finances and uh, realizing <laughs> the extent to which both of them were wildly double dipping. And Escoffier signed a confession and, and agreed to uh, repay them, although he only wound up paying a token amount because he had already spent all that uh, money. And uh, Ritz hotly denied it. Uh, and so they left uh, the Savoy uh, under a, a cloud and a big scandal, uh, but they both uh, popped right back up with uh, the, uh, the Hotel Ritz, the Carlton in London and the Ritz in Paris. And uh, it uh, turned out to uh, possibly have been a mistake on uh, Richard Darley Cart's part to, uh, to heave them out. And uh, on that note, I think it's time for us to uh, go wash our hands uh, while this commercial plays and come back for a, uh, completely a different uh, segment, one which may rocket us back in time in a couple of different ways. The Best of Askfagelm is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled 
F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on drive-thru. Join the ritzy elite comprised of beloved Patreon backers exactly like Randy Ship, Ryan Lassiter, Tenant Reed, Chris McLaren, and Joe Webb. It's time once again to gather ourselves together in the History Hut, and let's do so in the biggest, most capacious, most full of looted artifacts History Hut of all, the British Museum, uh, which we recently visited, and uh, we uh, just went to look at the uh, regular collection this time around, rather than their Troy show, which uh, everyone we talked to said was not a thing. Uh, and so, Ken, you immediately headed to... Uh, the uh, sections of this uh, palace of history that uh, immediately impact the uh, thing you're currently working on. And the thing you're currently working on is... Is Hellenistica, which is a 5E compatible uh, setting, uh, which is the good parts version of the 3rd century BC, about 80 years after the uh, death of Alexander the Great, give or take, but with you know, flying ships and Talos robots and fighting skeletons and Greek gods and griffins and all the good things that you've come to expect from a uh, adventuring world, which in fact, the world of the third century BC pretty much was. So when you're, so, you're working on a thing and you head into a room full of artifacts, uh, what are you uh, looking to, uh, do you have an agenda or are you just waiting for something cool uh, to strike you and have you add it to the list of uh, things. And is that thing a Malatian dog? <laughs> yes, yes, and yes. Um, I am looking for things, obviously, depending on the museum. Sometimes they will have, you know, f- uh, weapons of the period, and you always like to see those, swords and knives and whatnot, or other weird things that people might have used on each other. Uh, often they will have things labeled ritual object, which is always worth looking at to sort of get an idea of the form factor. I'm always impressed, uh, again, by how tiny the coins were back in those days. You think of a, a Greek gold stater and you think that's a big, that's a big thumping coin, like a British two pound coin. And you, you look at it, it's a tiny little flake of gold, like a gold microchip with a tiny little Greek, uh, king's head on it. I mean, the, the Greek king may have been just regular size for a Greek king, although Alexander the Great was kind of tiny, but, but it's, it's just a, it, it, you get into that sort of physical space of the of the setting, or you try to at least, and then yes, also there will be cool things that you didn't know right. there were because ancient such as, mints were very cognizant of people's encumbrance ratings, right? And so they wanted those gold coins to be small and portable. So the the, the ethos of Hellenism, as as expressed by the uh, Hellenistic room in the British Museum, is one of an era where suddenly the Verities of what's possible have been thrown in the air. People are very concerned uh, with uh, fate and fortune and chance and uh, everything's changing. And uh, this uh, suggests why this era is uh, ideal for uh, D&D style F20 adventurers to come 
uh, stomping around because, of course, they are uh, uh, thrive in an era where uh, authority has uh, has uh, gone uh, sideways, if not out the window, and they can get up to adventure and shenanigans. So, how do you expect to? incorporate that motif into the into the work i mean that, one of the nice things about the hellenistic era I, I say nice is that it was this sort of everything's uh up for grabs that taiki uh the, the the personification of fate is actually people start building temples to luck in this period because it's so important and you can be a zero to hero you can be a, a nobody sell sword and suddenly turn out to be a, a vizier or a king um, women have a vastly uh, altered uh, position in society. They can go out and make their own livings and, and have their own lives in many cases. It's a much more cosmopolitan society than the old societies were just because so many people have been moved all over the place. Uh, for example, one of the first heads that you get to is of a of a North African being depicted in the Greek style because they were part of the, the, the courts in Egypt or the court in um, in Macedon. And, uh, there's a, there's a real sort of a, of a churn going on in the Hellenistic era that is not the case in the classical era when everything is very sort of structured, um, and will again not really be the case under the Romans who are jerks. So you have this real window where, yeah, anything can happen. It's anything can happen Tuesday, but it's for 300 years. Um, and it's a great, uh, it just feels like a like a D&D adventure in a way that other periods of history don't uh, to me. And then in the art, it's expressed not just by statues of Taiki, um, and, um, uh, but also by an increased uh, 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 role for other gods, such as Hypnos, the god of sleep, and who is suddenly also now the god of sexy sleep. Um, because I, my theory, this is not what the museum says. Suddenly there's all kinds of cool, uh, drugs coming out of India. There's, um, cannabis and there's, uh, opium and all kinds of other great stuff. And you begin to see in Greek medical texts of the period, again, not in the museum, but I know this, um, that, uh, they start using opium syrup, mandragora as, uh, anesthetic for surgery. And so, as the temples to Asclepius suddenly pop up so that they can have a place to do these uh, drugs and get guidance from Asclepius and then do surgeries. And uh, and your cleric character will be very happy to know that his god is on the rise in, in this period. Exactly. Yeah, it's good for clerics. It's good for America. Um, and then the uh, uh, the art itself takes on a new kind of naturalism because the art of the classical era, while it's naturalistic, it's very idealized and everyone is sort of D done in this sort of reaching for the gods type mode, even and especially the gods are. But in the Hellenistic era, there there were whole uh, little cases full of grotesques, and they would show ugly people and old people and uh, people who had some sort of uh, deformity or people who were uh, uh, born uh, with dwarfism or had other kinds of things going on, and they would be carved in the same not as ha ha look at these guys, but as this could happen. It's, it's part of the the wild uh, variety of the life. Spirit and, of Fellini in the ancient world, right? People's expressions uh, start to change. Alexander, of course, uh, pioneers the head tilt, half smile as his characteristic look. The sort of Tom Cruise cocky look of the third century BC that then takes over, and you see that everywhere. Yeah, he was very image conscious and very specific about how he wanted right. to be uh, represented in an uh, uh, an early. 
Uh, so if your characters run into uh, Alexander uh, and he doesn't immediately kill them ending the campaign, right. uh, you can uh, portray him as sort of the, the Instagram uh, star of his day. Right. And, and that all the people who wanted to be Alexander are very much Instagram influencers themselves because while they're image conscious, the art no longer allows them to just create this idealized vision. And so you have all manner of, 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 um, and then, so there is a little statue of Ptolemy and his wife Arsinoe. And you see Ptolemy carrying the giant club of Heracles and wearing an elephant, uh, on his head, like an elephant skin, not a whole elephant. That would be ridiculous. Um, but he's wearing an elephant head on his head to indicate that he too is just like Heracles gone and conquered stuff. Um, but it's also, it's, it's not Heracles or even Ptolemy as Heracles. It's very Ptolemy cosplaying as Heracles. There's a humanity to it that is, that is fun and interesting. And as you alluded at the beginning of the segment, uh, even the dogs are human. There was a enormous, uh, sculpture, possibly life size, cause these were big dogs of a Molossian hound. And these are from, uh, the, the Molossian country, which I think is either in Thrace or Thessaly. It's up in the sort of Southern Balkans. And it, it bred big old dogs. And this is a big old dog. And he was a very good boy. You can tell a very good boy who would rip your arm off. If you're trying to get through a gate, your arm off and then look at his uh, master and say, I'm a good boy. Yes, and the master, I ripped his yes, arm off. You are. Yeah. But, uh, that, but that big old Molossian hound, um, is, is carved with a sort of a, a bubbling joie de vivre that in my experience, you don't always get with even classical depictions of dogs or other animals. And, um, and the, uh, the Molossian hound is, is, is giant. All of the various gods get looks in. Uh, there's a, a giant statue of Demeter that you can see. Uh, there's, uh, Hermes in his cool hat. Lots of depictions of Eros, uh, the son of, uh, Aphrodite. Uh, a couple of depictions of Persianized versions of the gods. So there's, uh, Persian Aphrodite, um, who might or might not have been called Anahita when people were worshiping her, uh, on the QT because that was her Persian name. Uh, there's other gods that have taken on sort of characteristics of the other conquered lands. It's, it's not a giant room. It's very, very full of stuff. Right. But, uh, they don't have, for example, in that room, one of the Hindu Heracleses. For that, we had to go to the Moria, uh, corner of the India wing. Right. And, and for, for fans of museumology, the newer an exhibit of a permanent collection is, the less stuff there will be in it. Because right. uh, today's practice is to show uh, relatively few items uh, and weave them together into more of a narrative, whereas the old impulse was, look at all this cool stuff we've got. And uh, you can tell from the way that I've framed this that I'm sort of more of a fan of the bunch of cool stuff where you can discover things yourselves instead of seeing yep. the particular uh, narrative that they're trying to lay out. And I think, Ken, you two were... Uh, somewhat taken aback by how little stuff there was on this particular Indian empire that you wanted uh, to yeah. bask in. I mean, the whole the the whole treatment of India in the British Museum is, and perhaps this will come as no news to our Indian listeners, is a little behindhand. Um, the the uh, India, of course, is a, a, a amazing civilization with a gigantic artistic output, and the British Museum gives it half of a hallway for the entire. A continent from the Neolithic to Bollywood. Now people are uh, are going to tell me, and did in fact tell me, oh, if you want the Indian stuff, you have to go to the VNA. Like that's not the point. The point is, this is the British Museum. They should have some A list Indian art instead of just making it a, a afterthought. And the Moria, 
which was the Indian Empire that was created basically is a in a response to the encounter with uh, Alexander the Great. Um, and in fact, uh, later historiographers claim that young Chandragupta Maurya met Alexander the Great and uh, said, when I grow up, I'm going to be just like you. And Alexander said, you do that, Chandragupta Maurya, and punched him on the shoulder in a good-natured way and didn't kill him at all, which doesn't sound like Alexander, but whatever. <laughs> and indeed, he did go off and he unified uh, northern India into a gigantic empire, and then his grandson, great-grandson, Ashoka, unified virtually the entire subcontinent, including big chunks of Alexander's former empire, uh, and set up a giant uh, edicts announcing that he had converted to Buddhism and would, at that point, stop invading things. And it wasn't just because the only parts uh, outside his empire were poor. Um, that's a coincidence. And so we had, in the Moria wing, there was parts of an Ashoka stila. There was a few ritual objects. There was the Kulu vessel, which excited me no end until I discovered it was merely found in the town of Kulu. But then I got excited again when I found that the Kulu comes from a um, uh, word meaning the end of the world, but that just meant it was at the very far northern reaches of India. It didn't mean it was the apocalyptic end. It just it meant I'm tired of Cthulhu going north. Kulu can have a town na named after him that makes total sense. Right. Let's not let's not look a a a, a gift word similarity in the mouth here. Right. Let's not a gift assonance. Um. And then so there's there was there was however as I alluded to a, a little piece of a wall from, uh, I don't know if it was from Takshila, but it was from that neck of the woods, Gandhara, northern, uh, northwestern India, um, that had depictions of Indra in a, in a Greek style. And then he has a buddy who has a big club and a lion skin and a complex Indian name. But when you look at him, you say, that's Heracles, good old Heracles. And he's been adapted into the Hindu pantheon and Hindified. And there was a couple of uh, little coins from the Moria's that uh, were uh, written in Greek as well as in Karoshthi, which is the uh, alphabet of the time. And um, that's, that's uh, sort of indicate that intermix of cultures that is part of the fun of the Hellenistic era. And certainly Hellenistic India is a big um, uh, interest of mine, not just because my player characters are currently have decided to overthrow the Moria Empire, and we will see how well they do at that. Uh, well, if that doesn't sound uh, like a, a questioning note, the sort of questioning note that leads us to a commercial and an entirely different segment altogether, I just have never heard a questioning note ever. Have you found the yellow sign? The King in Yellow, Robert W. Chambers' unearthly book, has inspired millions of readers since the death of the Gilded Age. A beautiful new edition from Arc Dream Publishing brings fresh potency to its stories of poisonous romance. This deluxe hardback features gold foil embossing and a leather cover in the black snakeskin pattern that Chambers described. A foreword by John Scott Tynes sets the stage. Annotations by Kenneth Height elucidate the secrets and histories of every Tale. Samuel Araya's full-color plates and charcoal illustrations evoke the otherworldly weirdness of Carcosa. Every print order comes with the PDF digital edition. The annotated King in Yellow insinuates itself into our reality in July 2019. The ball begins. 
It is time to don your mask. Join the masquerade at shop.arcdream.com. Come with me now as we climb the creakety cobweb stairs up past the portrait of the glowering Madame Blavatsky through the wood tool door to find a note that says, uh, the occultist is in another castle. Well, all right. Um, back down the stairs into the cab across town to the other castle, ring the doorbell note that for a castle, it seems very modern, not really castle seems like at a all. bookstore, really. Yeah. More like a bookstore. Well, a man's home is his bookstore, I've always said, and a man's bookstore is his castle. <laughs> never truer than by in the, your case. By the transit, except that in bookstores, you get to take the books away, and you do not get to take the books away. But anyway, that's neither here nor there, because we've been welcomed at the door by the bookseller, who is here to tell us about a different occult bookseller, one Edmond Bailly. And of course, you have listened to enough French occultists to know that he is called Edmond Bailly because his real name is Henri Edmond Limet. But we're going to call him Edmond Bailly because it's the only polite thing to do when you're in a man's bookstore. So Robin. Yes. And my guess would be it's, it's LeMay. But again, LeMay, right. uh, we're not fooling anybody. We're with not our fooling French anyone. Um, uh, Robin, tell us why we took a cab all the way across town to this bookstore when we could have stayed in the occult Edwardian snuggery of our regular occultist. Uh, because uh, we are once more uh, doing our consulting occultist uh, series on the occultists of the French Belle Epoque. And if there's uh, anybody who is central to all of the other characters that your art students uh, in Paris can meet up with, it would be uh, Edmund Bailly, or as uh, the bluffest of the American art student characters probably calls him, Ed Bailey. So uh, he uh, founded and, and runs the uh, Libraire de la Art Independente, the uh, bookstore of independent art, I guess you would call it. Yep. And this is in the ninth arrondissement in Paris. It's uh, near uh, the Louvre at 11 Rue de Chaussée d'Antin. Oh my God, I'm very sorry, all of France. Yeah. And uh, today, if you go there, as best as I can tell from Google Maps, it is an Apple store across the street from a Sephora, or perhaps it's next to an Apple store. At any rate, uh, back <laughs> in the day, this was the hub of not just uh, a cult uh, hanging out, but uh, the symbolist movement as well about art and music and particularly the decadent art and music that uh, Chambers both draws on and scorns when he describes uh, the decadent play of the King in Yellow. And so uh, Bailly's uh, circle includes composers. He himself was a composer and artist, visual artist, as well as uh, people who are interested uh, in the occult. Um, he uh, was a captivating speaker, uh, a charismatic person who you, you wanted to go into his bookstore just to uh, hear what he was saying or what, what people were saying to him. And of course, while you were there, maybe you picked up a book or two. Um, maybe you picked up a book that he published because he uh, published a line of books as, as and well. And he would have uh, salons that would double as book release parties or uh, people would come in and do occult lectures that would provide you with uh, sort of, and this is the book I'm working on. And so you'd get all excited and you'd want to come back and, and buy the book. And uh, for bookhound players, 
Uh, I should point out that there is a rival occult bookstore uh, across the arrondissement called the Libraire du Merveilleux, the bookstore of marvels, um, that is run by a, uh, a fellow named Lucien Chamuel. And so I think they were friendly rivals at the beginning. I don't think that there was a, a lot of occult throwing down between them, but you could certainly add that if you wanted to. They, they were friendly rivals because they the, those two establishments had different focuses. So right. yeah. Baye's place was a bookstore and a bookstore that had actually a bigger uh, arts and letters department than an occult department, but it was a bookstore. Whereas the other one is called a bookstore, but is actually an alchemical supply house. <laughs> that's where you, that's where you go to get your athenors and your tubes and stuff. Right. And uh, it also uh, doubled as a, a specialty press publishing occult uh, tomes and, well, not tomes, but occult magazines and, mm-hmm. and so forth. He published the occasional tome. Yes. So, yes, they they they, they uh, fulfilled uh, different purposes and were not rivals because they were two very different places. And, and as uh, player characters, you will go to them for different things. You will go to uh, Baez's place in order to uh, catch up with what the latest ideas is in uh, theosophy and the occult are and hear a lecture and uh, you'll go to the other one to buy a, uh, a bit of equipment you need to uh, uh, perform the magic to uh, ward off uh, the yellow sign. Right. Before we get too deep in the, in the woods, I, I want to quote the classic backhanded compliment uh, that uh, the historian or memoirist, I don't think he's technically a historian for Emile Michelet, not the Michelet you're thinking of, uh, said when he said that Bayi belonged to that category of men on whom the gods have bestowed multiple gifts while forgetting to add another small, mysterious and secondary gift talent. <laughs> <laughs> so take that Michelet or rather take that Bayi. But uh, Michelet is, is a guy who used to hang out at the, at the bookstore just like everyone else. So I don't know why he's, uh, you know, copying an attitude. He was probably just mad that Odilon Redon got more attention than he did. Yes. Well, as we've mentioned before, the occult scene is full of backbiting. And right. uh, if any anyone knows any art scene or any uh, theater scene, theater or music scene, uh, yeah, that might also apply there too. Yeah, you know, it could no. happen. Um, and I, I'm not. And I think he may have been referring to his. Uh, his poetry or his, uh, the music he composed. I think he was which, referring to all of it. I mean, I think that he was arguing that his poetry wasn't very good poetry. His music wasn't very good music. His and, writing and indeed, wasn't very good writing. It does not come down to us. Right. Right. It's not, he's not in the repertoire. Um, I know a little bit of it does. Um, Jocelyn Godwin, my beloved hero is a musicologist and has, uh, discovered a very few Bayi compositions. Um, oh, I mean, yes, I, I wasn't saying that the, that there are no records of his music, but rather it isn't in the repertory. No, no, no one plays yeah. it anymore unless they're literally doing a theosophical concert. Right. The people who are in the repertory that you will run into as player characters when you go to the, his bookstore include uh, Eric Satie uh, at this point uh, in his 20s. But he at, this is when he's writing all of the stuff that he's still famous for, those haunting uh, piano tunes that even if you don't know what I'm talking about, you've heard because they've mm-hmm. been used in a zillion movies. And he is a young occultist at this point. And you'd run into Sati's buddy, uh, Claude Debussy, who I know you've heard. Yes. Uh, Debussy is there as, as well. Sati reappears in Dreamhounds of Paris in his uh, older avant-gardist phase when he's writing modernist movement and is hanging out with the surrealists. So if he featured in your uh, Dreamhounds game, you can have him recur uh, in Yellow King and sort of 
illustrate how close together in time uh, the symbolist movement and the surrealist movements uh, really were and how the one influenced the other, even though on paper they're, they're quite different. Also, uh, other writers that you might run into there are uh, Stefan Mallarmé and uh, Joris Karl Huismans, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, another decadent writer whose decadence uh, seems to have uh, influenced or inflected uh, uh, chambers. And uh, we've previously told the story of the occult feud where he thought uh, other occultists were sending death curses at him. Um, and that's something you'll have to bring in uh, on stage. And the artists that you might encounter there include uh, Odilon Redon, who uh, very much uh, has the uh, the weird uh, horror uh, vibe in his work, and also uh, Toulouse-Lautrec. And uh, another decadent, uh, some would say, uh, pornographic uh, artist named uh, Felician Rops, and I'm also undoubtedly mispronouncing uh, that. And Rops uh, famously illustrated Baudelaire. Yes. And uh, mixed uh, overt Satanism and sex into what Baudelaire had left poetically implied, and just making sure that no one, everyone would be like, oh, that's why we banned Baudelaire. That's why yes. you can't publish And is therefore thought to have been a big influence on on, on Crowley. Yes, and on uh, uh, Aubrey Beardsley as well, Yeah, obviously. So uh, in terms of what to do with uh, this character, so it's the, it's the King in Yellow. Uh, he's a bookseller. King in Yellow is all about a cursed book. <laughs> do the math, people. <laughs> do the math, people. Um, and so he can become uh, your uh, your patron in the group. He can have, tell you a terrifying story of how some weirdo tried to sell him the book and he knew better. And now he's, you know, uncharacteristically, this is the one symbolist text that he wants to suppress rather than uh, celebrate because he knows all the terrible things that happened. And he uh, gives you missions and introduces you. And uh, especially if you want to do a series that's sort of the uh, celebrity a historical figure of, of the week thing where one week you get in a, a scrape with uh, Toulouse or Trek and the next time you're uh, hanging out with Eric Satie. That's obviously the great uh, mechanism for that. Um, and I think he wanted to uh, point out the motto of his uh, publishing firm. I did. I, I thought that we, we could close with that. The um, publishing company, the logo was, des- I think it was designed by Felician Rops. I'm not a thousand percent sure. I believe it was. It, it was designed by somebody and it was a, a voluptuous young lady astride a fish. And that was the, the, the logo of the, of the publishing house, which is, I hope getting everyone's Lovecraftian juices sparking. But the motto was non hic Pisces omnium in Latin. This fish is not for everyone. And uh, not unlike our uh, "This bicycle does not make toast" uh, T-shirt that we sell at the Ken and Robin merch store. <laughs> not unlike, and and I think on that uh, commercial note, Robin, uh, it may be that uh, we must exit through the gift shop as indeed we came in. Indeed, uh, this this fish of a podcast will be back swimming your way a week from today. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Gather in the bookstore of our hearts by joining such beloved Patreon backers as... Ludovic Chabon. The Monster Talk Podcast. Phil Groff. 
Simon Proctor, and Rich Spainauer. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our hottest new design, Carcosa Fandango. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>